You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can go ahead and grab that and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I went on a Friday night to see the new Jurassic World movie, and uh, before the film started, there was a commercial. You might have seen this when it's an Old Spice commercial with Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, and the sweat is just like spewing out of his armpits. Well, that's going to be me today. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the heads up. I'm going to be sweating like crazy up here, and you're going to have to just deal with it. You're probably sweating like crazy too, and it's going to be all right. But here's the thing. We have something incredibly important to talk about this morning. I'm talking like super, super important. And I know it's going to be harder for you to focus today. And it's going to be harder for me to preach. Because I get grumpy when I'm hungry and when I'm hot. Anybody else like that? And I'm hot right now, so I'm a little grumpy. So this is going to be harder for me and it's going to be harder for you. So I want to stop and I want to pray again before we even get started. Will you pray with me? God, we ask for your help right now. We do believe that as we open your word together, we have something so very important and life-transforming to talk about today. And it's going to be harder than normal for us to focus, so we ask for your supernatural help over these next few minutes. Work in us. Speak to us. All for the sake of your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, if you're willing and able, will you stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word? Romans chapter 3 is our passage we'll be studying together today. All of these verses will be on screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on your way out today. But this is our passage, Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are in week two of this four-part series that seeks to answer just one question, and that question is, what is an evangelical? What is an evangelical? The word evangelical has become ubiquitous in recent years. We hear this person claim to be 
an evangelical in the news. We see that person accused of being an evangelical because of certain priorities. And as the word evangelical circulates more and more in our day, I find myself wanting to say, in the words of Inigo Montoya, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. See, in American pop culture, the word evangelical has come to mean white people who are vaguely religious and who vote Republican. It has become politicized and divisive. Well, at Faith Church, we say that we are part of the evangelical Presbyterian Church. What exactly do we mean when we say we are evangelical? That's what this series is all about. Here's the big idea for the next few weeks. So much of what goes by the name evangelical these days is better termed evangelifish. No doctrinal solidity, no missional spine, merely a political pulpy mass. Which is terribly unfortunate because the word, the English word evangelical, comes from the Greek word euangelion, meaning gospel. Gospel. Evangelicals are a global family, a coalition of Bible-believing Christians committed to sharing with everyone everywhere the good news of new life in Jesus Christ. An utterly free gift. An utterly free gift that comes through faith alone in the crucified and risen Savior. From this definition, we can distill four marks or qualities. At Faith Church, when we say we are evangelicals, we mean these four things. We are Bible people, gospel people, born-again people, and Great Commission people. Last week, we talked about this first mark, Bible people. And we learned about four attributes of the Bible, four attributes of Scripture. It's clarity, meaning that the Bible is for everyone. It's not just for the educated. It's not just for the elite. The Bible is clear enough to be understood by all people. We talked about the Bible's authority. Because God is the source of Scripture, Scripture is our supreme authority. So it's clarity and it's authority. We also talked about the Bible's necessity. We need the Bible for so many things. And then finally, the sufficiency of the Bible. Within the scriptures you will find everything you need to know God personally, to have an eternal relationship with him, and to follow him faithfully for as long as he has you on this earth. The Bible is sufficient. So that's what we mean by Bible people. Now today we're going to talk about what it means to be gospel people. And we're looking here at Romans chapter 3. Romans is the longest and most influential letter written by the apostle Paul. And really, the whole letter is an explanation of the gospel and an application of the gospel to the day-to-day lives of these first-century Christians who lived in a very competitive, very complicated capital city of the Roman Empire. And here in Romans 3, verses 21 to 31, is the theological heart of the letter. This is a short, memorable, powerful explanation of the gospel message. And in this passage, we're going to learn that the gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news. News about guiltiness, fairness and freedom, and newness of life. The gospel is news. It's news about guiltiness, fairness and freedom, 
and newness of life. Or we could say it like this. The gospel is the good news that God releases the prisoner on death row who is undeniably guilty, and yet God remains impartial or just in his judgment. Now, how can that be? How does that make sense? Let's look at the passage together. Beginning with this first point, the gospel is news about guiltiness. Here's how Paul begins. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He begins by saying, but now, in this period of history that has been ushered in by the coming of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been revealed to us. Now, this passage is full of these important theological terms. Don't be frightened by them. We're going to unpack them together. And this is not some dry doctrine. You're going to see that this is life-transforming stuff. But the first term we need to unpack is this term righteousness, or this phrase, the righteousness of God. Now, this is a bit complex. Biblical scholars debate what exactly is meant by this phrase, the righteousness of God. And I think it's very much like a diamond, a multifaceted diamond. We can turn the diamond this way and we see this truth and turn the diamond that way and we see another one. But the primary facet, the point that Paul develops in this passage is this. The righteousness of God is God's fairness. His fairness. It is God's unchanging commitment to do what is right, what is fair, what is just. Any of you remember being in school, elementary school, middle school maybe? And it was one of those days where there were a couple of people in the classroom or maybe a sizable group that were talking or doing something disrespectful when the teacher's back was turned. And so what did the teacher do? The teacher punished the whole class, right? Like everybody in the class got in trouble because of this one guy or this one group over here. And you know what, when you think about that, it it might have been practical, it might have been effective, but it wasn't really just, was it? It wasn't really just because there were kids in the classroom that day who were punished when their behavior was good and they were punished along with all the unruly ones. But in order to get to the guilty party, the teacher had to punish the whole class. Here's what the righteousness of God means. It means that God never punishes the innocent. He never punishes the innocent. And it means that God never excuses the guilty. So which one are we? Well, look at what Paul says next. There is no distinction. We're all in the same boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is clear that you and I, we are undeniably guilty. We don't stand with the innocent. We stand with the guilty. The Bible says that we are all sinners. Now here's the thing about sin. Even those actions that we think of as, well, they're just small Sins. Those things we see in ourselves, our thoughts, our words, our actions that we identify as small, they're not really that significant. The Bible says they are serious. They are significant. And here's why. Because even the smallest sinful action 
is a revolt, a rebellion against God. It's you saying to God, God, I know better than you. Who, who are you to tell me how to live? The smallest sinful behavior is actually an act of cosmic treason. It's you rebelling against your creator. But here's the thing about sin that we also have to understand. Sin goes much deeper than our behaviors. Much deeper than our behaviors. And this means that on that day when you were the good kid in the class, the one who was being quiet, reading your book, doing your homework or whatever, you still stood with the guilty party. Because according to Scripture, it's not just your actions or your behavior that is sinful. It's your heart. So is mine. In our natural state, apart from God, our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are rebellious, self-serving, not God-glorifying. So you see, until God does something within you, you can appear good, but you have a monster within you. And so do I. Classic example of this is Robert Louis Stevenson's book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you don't know this book, Stevenson was a theologian without even realizing it. And he was also the inventor, the creator of a new genre, the psychological thriller. You know, we see this all the time in movies today, in books even. But Jekyll and Hyde was the first story that really focused on a conflict that was within a character, in the character's heart. It was the beginning of this whole psychological thriller genre that we all love to watch and read about today. Even if you don't know the the specifics of the story, you probably know the vague details. We have this character, Dr. Jekyll, and he is the quintessential Victorian gentleman. I mean, he looks great on the outside, well-polished, well-mannered, looks like a good dude. But he has this monster living within him. On the surface, he looks great, but he's corrupt where it matters the most in the heart. In the heart. This is what the Bible teaches us about all people. We are corrupt in our hearts, in our natural state apart from God. Our hearts are sinful. And that means that even when we look good on the surface, there's a monster within us. We are undeniably guilty. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll never understand the rest of what the gospel has to say to us. We must see that before God, our creator, we stand guilty. The gospel is first news of our guiltiness. Then, we see in this passage that the gospel is news of fairness and freedom. God's fairness and our freedom. Let's keep reading verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You think on that for a second. I gotta gotta grab a swig of water because it's burning up in here. Anybody else burning up? Oh yeah, that's like pool water right there. It's delicious. You know it's hot when you know it's hot when you have a cold bottle of water at the beginning of the service and now it's like 80 degrees. Fairness and freedom, back to the text. Sorry, that's just you know ADD kicking in, it happens. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. we got some more terms to unpack here. So think about what we've learned so far. God's righteousness is his fairness. 
It's his commitment, his unswerving commitment to do what is right, what is just. And we stand before him guilty. So that sounds like we're in trouble, right? And then Paul goes on to say, but we are justified by his grace as a gift. So how is it that this holy, this righteous God can look at guilty people and let us go free? That's what he unpacks here. We are justified by his grace as a gift. This word justified, you might have heard someone use this pithy definition. To be justified is to be treated just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified is to be treated just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified is to be acquitted, vindicated. There you stand in the courtroom. Guilty is the verdict, and yet somehow you're able to go free. Now how can that be if God is righteous? If he cannot merely excuse the guilty and we are guilty, then how is it that we get to leave his courtroom? Paul unpacks that next. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, both these terms, justification and redemption, they're metaphors that come from the ancient world. The first one takes us into the courtroom. The second one, redemption, takes us out of the courtroom and into the city streets where many people lived as slaves. Redemption involved the paying of a price to set a prisoner of war or a slave free to liberate them. And what Paul tells us here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the payment. He is the one who sets us free from our slavery to sin. And then he says that he is our propitiation. All have sinned, all are guilty, and we are justified, acquitted, not in such a way that we earn it. No, it's the grace of God given to us as a gift. And this justification comes through the redemption, the paying of the price by Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation. What does that mean? To say that Jesus is our propitiation is to say that he is our atoning sacrifice. So it's not just that he paid the debt we owed because of our sin. He erased that debt, yes, but he also extinguishes the wrath, the holy anger of the righteous Father, which should have been poured out on us because we're guilty. I can see I've lost some of you, so let me give you a story, an illustration from modern day that will help you see how all of this fits together. Let's say that I have come into some financial troubles. So I go to a friend, a good friend, and I say, hey, man, I need to borrow 10 grand. And he says, okay, I'll loan you the $10,000 so long as you pay it back by this date. And we agree on that deadline, but then the deadline comes, and I can't pay it back. So my brother, who loves me, steps in, and he pays my debt for me, pays the full 10 grand. In that scenario, all is well. I walk away. But now let's change up the details just a little bit. I'm in financial trouble and I go to my friend and I say, hey buddy, I need to borrow 10 grand. And he says to me, sorry, I don't have it or I'm not giving it to you. And so I decide to break into his house and take what I need. But here's the problem, I'm not a very good thief. I leave my fingerprints everywhere. And so the police track me down. 
Now, I've already spent that 10 grand. It's gone. But my brother who loves me, he steps in and he offers to pay my debt, to pay the full 10 grand. Now, in that scenario, all is not well. It's not well. Because in that scenario, not only have I incurred a debt, but I have committed a crime. You see? I've committed a crime. So it's not enough merely to pay back the debt. The Bible teaches us that our sin is a debt. There's a debt we owe to God, but also we've committed crimes against God. We've committed crimes. We are guilty. And guilty people can't just be excused. Sin can't just be brushed under the rug like it never happened. And this is why Jesus came. To say that he is our propitiation means that he is the one who places himself in our place. He gives himself for us. He absorbs the punishment. He pays for our crimes. Jesus does everything necessary to save us. This is the good news of the gospel. But also notice that Paul says, we don't receive this. This doesn't come to us automatically. We must receive it by faith. By faith. This whole passage, we could put it under one heading. Justification by faith alone. By faith alone. Now it's important for you to understand, it's not justification by works. If you have been living your life in such a way that you've been trying to manipulate God to love you, In fact, you came to church this morning because you think this is one of the things you need to do in order for God to love you or save you or redeem you, then you have not yet been redeemed. You're not living in a proper relationship with the God who made you. It's not justification by works, nor is it justification by death. Now, this is a common misconception today. There are many people who think, well, you know, when people die... Everyone just lives happily ever after. Justification by death. When we die, all is forgiven, automatically so. But that's not what Paul says here. The good news of the gospel, it must be received by faith. Or I could say it like this. Everything that Jesus has done for you, it will not be applied to you until you place your faith in him. Until you believe in him. All that Jesus has done for you, it will be disconnected from you way out there until you believe, until you receive him by faith. So the gospel is news of our guiltiness. It's news of God's fairness and our freedom. There's one last thing I want you to see in this passage, and we're getting ready to wrap up, so hang with me. I know you're hot. Newness of life. The gospel is news of newness of life. Look at how Paul concludes the passage. Then what becomes of our boasting? In light of all this that he's just taught us, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? So here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel changes everything about you and everything about me. It transforms all of us. And in this passage in particular, Paul shows us that the gospel changes the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. 
He reminds us that God is not the God of one ethnic group. No, this is the God who's the creator of the universe. He's the God of all. He has one plan of salvation, and that plan is Jesus Christ came to do everything for us. Believe in him. See, there's a message, a very timely message for us here. It's a message about the diversity and the unity of humanity. If I've lost you because of the heat, I want you to come back for this final part because this is really important. I heard someone say this week that if they could live in any period of history, it would be this one. I know you hear that and probably like me, you thought, what? This one? Really? Here's what they said. I thought it was really good. They said, you know, I would pick this one, absolutely. Because when you're living in the midst of the rubble, it's very clear what must be done. You rebuild you rebuilt. There is much rebuilding that needs to be done in our world today, especially around these subjects of identity and gender and race. I see two predominant approaches to these subjects today. The first one is the prideful approach, and the second one is the shameful approach. The first says, because I am a part of this social group, fill in the blank, I am superior. And the other one says, because I am in this social group, whatever it is, fill in the blank, I am ashamed. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Neither the prideful nor the shameful approach is consistent with the gospel. Neither one. The gospel says it is good to be a man if God made you a man. It is good to be a woman if God made you a woman. The gospel says it's good to be a white man if God made you a white man. It's good to be a black woman if God made you a black woman. But the gospel also says whoever you are, you, yes you, are someone in need of saving. You're someone in need of saving. And so am I. This one plan of salvation, this offer of salvation to anyone who will believe in Jesus, it shows us the fundamental unity of humanity in God's eyes. The gospel shows us that whoever we are, there is something seriously wrong with us. In our hearts, apart from God, we are sinful. There is something seriously wrong with us, whoever we are, and the gospel shows us that whoever we are, there is something profoundly valuable about us. Because God sent his own son, Jesus, to die in our place. To take the penalty, the punishment for our sin. That's how much God loves you. So you see, the gospel changes the way we see ourselves and it changes the way we see others. It doesn't make us prideful, but it makes us grateful. This is what we mean when we say we are gospel people. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love that you have shown us in so many different ways, but supremely in sending your son for us. We thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of Jesus. 
his death on the cross and our place for our sins, his resurrection. God, I pray today that you would work in hearts, that you would give the gift of faith to those who have been trying to work or earn their own salvation. They can't do it. The only thing we can earn is death. So free us of that today. I ask you to give the gift of faith. For those of us who are believers, I pray that we would continue looking to you each day with faith, trusting in you, Jesus. Trusting in you. And for those of us who have been thinking of our own identities, gender, social group, whatever it is, and we've had a prideful approach, or maybe we've had that shameful approach, God, I pray that you'll free us of that as well. You have created us. You love us. Apart from you, we are deeply, deeply sinful and in need. But we also see that we are profoundly valuable to you, God, because you sent your son for us. We thank you for that today. In his name we pray. Amen.